World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kaligan. We're coming at you right now, Friday, October 13th, at the beginning of Israel's ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. We're seeing the first inklings of that. Soldiers have entered the Gaza Strip. They're doing preliminary sweeps. We've seen some of the largest airstrikes seen. I mean, this some of the stuff is making the war in Ukraine look like child's play. People have wondered what we meant when we said that that Putin and the Russian military weren't going all out. This is, you know, that all makes a lot more sense now. Of course, we've seen a civilian convoy bombed, 70 casualties of people trying to escape Gaza through the Egyptian exit, which the Egyptians are also being tentative about while also trying to get humanitarian convoys up there at the against the will of Israel. We have seen all sorts of countries respond, Erdogan, Russia, you know, are coming out in support of the Palestinians. We have a whole lot to talk about. We're going to talk about stuff going on in Ukraine as well, but this is really World War III, you know, has entered another hot front, and here we are to tell you all about it. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's it's a really tough time right now in the Levant. The, the Middle East is is very much at strife at the moment, especially it's obvious in, in the Gaza Strip, in Israel proper, which, you know, there's bombardment going on everywhere, and the casualty numbers are absolutely staggering. So an immense amount of suffering uh, for both Palestinians and Israelis. But And the, the, main, the, the most surprising thing is, of course, is the fact that it's all moving so quickly and we're only one week into the conflict and the suffering, it just builds up up, uh, upon itself. And so there's really no time for grieving because the the people living in these areas, they're essentially, there's no time for grieving. They have to care for themselves. Their relatives are dying around them. So there's really no time to even be upset because they have to fight for their own lives or even think about moving or thinking about seeking refuge abroad or even how they're going to survive the next 24 hours and now that israel of course then we're making this recording um on the evening of the feast day of the protection of the theotokos the 13th of october so there is this consideration that israel will be actually pushing into gaza actually right now as we're recording the gaza land invasion will begin and this is after almost a week of very intense bombardment as the prelude and of course the bombardment has taken many palestinian lives and of course israel is painting this as a retaliation of vengeance this um retaliation of the israelis something like they would you know depict out of an old testament story but again this is very much unlike the old testament because the hand of god is really not seen anywhere here in terms of his will being done if anything all these criminal acts right now are being committed by well, we we don't want to say both sides like that unequivocally but definitely by the israeli side and by anyone who's seeking to provoke this conflict you know god is permitting all these atrocities from uh you know uh, to occur and it's really taking a toll on the local populace. I think that's that's pro probably the the summary of what's happening. But again, the details are interesting in and of themselves, which we'll go into shortly. Yeah, be prepared, guys. There's going to be a lot of information in this episode. We're kind of just going to go through the situation on the ground and then seamlessly transition right into covering the international reaction. You know, the online reaction, atrocity propaganda, and then we'll also relate this to the other conflicts around the world, whether it's Ukraine, Taiwan, even Armenia, Azerbaijan. So, you know, be prepared, sit down, don't want to skip any of this. This is all going to be critical stuff. And again, we're deep in the fog of war right now. So by the time you listen to this, things could have changed. I'm sure these numbers will have increased again right about now. You know, Israel's sitting at about, you know, 1,500 killed, you know, thousands more injured. Gaza has over 2,000 killed at this point. The West Bank, they're sitting at around 50. And then Lebanon has had over six people killed in Israeli strikes there. And then 
shots have been fired back from Lebanon and Syria. At this point, it's really understood that this is entirely Hamas and Hamas affiliates. Hezbollah has fired against Israel as well, but those are in. In theory, like it's not direct, like it is obviously tied to what Hamas is doing, but they responded to Israeli strikes on Hezbollah. They're still just doing tit for tat. They haven't declared any kind of invasion, which again, if they do, that would basically guarantee Iran's involvement because right now the USS Gerald R. Ford, a United States aircraft carrier, is right off the coast of Israel in the eastern Mediterranean, deterring supposedly Hezbollah specifically. And if that, if the aircraft carrier engages, then at that point, all hell breaks loose and it's World War III, right, you know, to the point where it isn't just us talking about it, to where everybody's talking about it. And, you know, total World War now vindication, but not something that we would be happy to be vindicated about. But as of right now, the operation is ongoing. Hamas, while they have taken a lot of casualties, people need to understand that the reason they're able to keep going and are able to literally launch more paraglider infiltrators, launch more UAVs, more missiles, more people on trucks and bikes is because almost all of their infrastructure is underground in the Gaza Strip, which is why Israel is using these insanely powerful rockets and bunker busters because they're trying to get underground. It's why the carnage is so brutal and why so many civilians have been deceased. And again, again, I'm trying to see videos on both sides. There's been some bad stuff, obviously, from the Israeli side, but looking at what happened in Gaza, I've seen dozens of babies pulled dead out of rubble. I've seen actual, like, the, the aftermath of what happens when a pregnant person is exploded. I've all seen those real videos verified out of Gaza. What I haven't seen is the supposed 40 decapitated babies and the other stuff that characters like Ben Shapiro insist on being real. So obviously the atrocity propaganda conversation is wide ranging. We're seeing all sorts of it. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways to look into that and break that down. But as of right now, it is very clear that it's kind of breaking down in a sort of, you know, BRICS plus versus the United States sort of way. Brazil seems to be siding with Israel largely, but it seems that almost all of the Arab world, Russia, China, are all calling for peace in Palestine, calling for an independent Palestinian state, and basically condemning Israel's operations at this point. They've taken it way too far. And, of course, we have the United States and Western Europe and other countries supporting Israel, you know, really elevating the voices of their Jewish diaspora in their countries. So. That's sort of the current current state of World War III as of right now and as the uh, international community is responding to it. I think, unless you have anything else to say just in general about the ground situation, Dimitri, I think probably the two most interesting reactions are coming from Erdogan and Putin. Yeah, I would say the only thing on the ground is uh, naturally Israel, again, you know, the one thing we're expecting is lessons of the Ukraine-Russia war to be utilized in, in Israel and Palestine. So namely drones, artillery, exactly, because remember the, the large amounts of artillery shells. And there were rumors that Israel would not does not actually have the artillery shell stock in, in stock to fight a prolonged war against, say, Hezbollah and Hamas and maybe even the Syrian army in the Golan Heights altogether. But but, but at this point, uh, artillery shells have not been an issue for the Israeli Israeli forces in despite all the bombardment we've been seeing. And frankly, uh, yes, that's right. The s second major, I guess, I guess, tactic used by the Israelis was drones against Hezbollah targets in the north of Israel. So Israel is really not afraid. And of provoking its neighbors, especially up in the north, and opening a second front. If anything, it's almost saying that, yeah, we dare you to come attack us. We have Gerard Ford in the Mediterranean. We have the Eisenhower. So we have the two, it's essentially like, it's like a Star Wars type star, star destroyers literally sitting there in the Mediterranean. 
and they're, they're, they're ready to strike out and lash out at anybody who opposes Israel. So essentially, the support for the Jewish state of Israel is very strong. And again, as you mentioned, we, we see this in the uh, in the international community amongst some of its uh, most outspoken pro-Israeli members. But nevertheless, nevertheless, Israel is acting very arrogant. We're seeing it, it not, not just bomb Hezbollah targets and essentially breach, uh, which Putin has accused them of breaching Lebanese sovereignty, but also Syrian sovereignty. And I, I don't mean to just say the Golan Heights in the north in the in the northeast, but also uh, even bombing the airports of Damascus and Aleppo. And of course, these bombings they haven't done much damage. Essentially, Israel flies a flies a long distance bomber and of course just fires a few drops a few bomb loads on on the runway. So it doesn't really hit, hit too much Syrian infrastructure. If anything, it just essentially decommissions the the airport for maybe a couple of weeks at most. But it is a sign. Essentially, they're sending a sign to to Assad do not get involved. You know, even though the Iranian foreign minister is visiting both Assad and the Lebanese um, Hezbollah division in Lebanon. So the Iranians are sending their sort of envoys to speak on behalf of, you know, to speak on behalf of this fight against Israel and to promote things. And I'm sure Assad, I'm not even sure if Assad has the you know, capabilities to do anything, but Israel is sending a message saying, look, regardless of who comes here, Assad, you don't want any of this because look, we're willing to bomb Damascus itself. We have the technology, we have the planes and you don't, you don't necessarily have them. If anything, Assad, I mean, we mentioned this for pre previous weeks, Assad relies heavily on the Russian Air Force. And is Russia willing to engage? I mean, this is, it would be an exact a hot World War III scenario if Russia engages on behalf of Assad against the Israeli Air Force. I mean, it would be absolutely insane. But yes, Gaza is being bombarded heavily. And I believe at this point, the Israeli military has pushed the majority of the Hamas militants or the Hamas freedom fighters, whatever you want to call them, back into the Gaza Strip. And frankly, this is how the casualties on the Israeli side have been, uh, you know, adding up as they're clearing up all these various villages. And, they're, you know, some of the stories are completely fictitious, like you mentioned, the 40 beheaded babies which was an absolutely crazy story that allegedly Israel uh, identified a village in which they found 40 beheaded um, Israeli babies beheaded by Hamas. And, you know, this sounds horrible, but to us Orthodox Christians, the first thing that brings up is, is essentially this weird Israeli secular version of maybe the 40 martyrs of Sebasti, if you recall the the, the lives of narratives, uh, the lives of Saint narrative of this particular story. The, the saints were Roman legionaries who served in Turkey at the time during the reign of Diocletian. And they, you know, they didn't want to convert to, to the pagan religion, to abandon Christ, to pray to idols. And so the Diocletian ordered them to be uh, placed into a frozen pond. And they survived that encounter. They actually stood in the frozen lake all night naked, survived it miraculously and allegedly there was an angel standing there amongst them and it's just a very good narrative lives of saint i recommend lives of saints narrative i recommend reading it and eventually all 40 legionaries were beheaded and they all became martyrs for christ but this story and you know we celebrated in the orthodox church we understand the powers of the world use these stories as essentially as inspirations for their own decoys and red herrings which they throw at us and in many ways it's not just imitation it's this antichrist type humiliation which they bring to us by essentially imitating and uh copying some of our narratives. And I mean, the Antichrist himself will be this dark simulacrum of Christ, this fake, uh, this fake Messiah. And so it's not surprising that the 40 beheaded babies turned out to be a complete false narrative. And essentially it is a yeah, mocking a good, uh... against Christians. Yeah, that's a good point. It's it's a similar pattern I want to point out as well. And this is, it's not quite as religious in, in, in nature, but it's something that a lot of people, a lot of people who, you know, at least over the course of the first year of 2022 of the special military operation got wise to the Ukraine PSYOP and realized that, you know, the ginning up of American support for Ukraine was a, was, you know, a media, you know, globalist operation.
operation to, you know, mind control, get people behind a very specific operation, of course, that if they knew anything about it would seem ridiculous. And we're seeing right now just the crazy, particularly from the evangelical camp, support for the Zionist state. And I want to compare that to the, the SMO situation because, look, me and Dimitri, we've been following this for years. We knew all about it. We knew that the SMO was in a response to the bombings of civilians in Donetsk, of the oppression ever since the Maidan happened in Ukraine, and all sorts of other you know, horrible atrocities, the suppression of the Russian language and all of that. Eventually, of course, Russia finally answered the call and went into Ukraine. And of course, for people that didn't know that, it seemed like, oh, aggression, you know, they're defying a sovereign state, you know, no one wants to support this. Whereas it's the same situation in Israel. All these people that don't actually follow the situation, that have never ever looked at the Palestinian side of things, that don't know that Gaza is an open-air prison, that don't know that the West Bank and all these places have been shrinking and shrinking in Palestinian size and influence. So the Christian population has been completely decimated ever since the Zionists rolled in, you know, in the 40s at the end of the Second World War. So it, it's one of the same things. And now they think, oh, it's this horrible terrorist attack. They're targeting civilians. When in reality, you know, Hamas is basically realizing that if Saudi Arabia does sign a normalization with Israel, that there's just going to be no chance for them. So they realize either we accept this open-air prison as our status quo or we go for broke and try to basically, in many ways, from their perspective, try to foment a larger conflict. Like, in the same way Israel may be trying to foment a larger conflict, Hamas is as well. And obviously that does tie into the fact that Netanyahu and the Likud coalition government have been supporting Hamas in the Gaza Strip and in the Palestinian lands for a long time because they viewed them as a good foil to build up their settlements, to increase their bellicose rhetoric to increase their expansionism to beef up their militarization and everything and you know build up even religious fervor and do things like their storming of the al-aqsa mosque and all the other jewish rituals that they've been attempting to do and you know to provoke the muslims and the, they also provokes the christians but there aren't really any christians to react anymore so again as we're talking about all of this haifa and tel aviv are being shelled and hit with uh, drones as well so hamas has really been able to Really, they've been preparing this for months, and they've been able to utilize a full surrounding spectrum of, of weapons and tactics to really... I mean, today has been called the Day of Jihad. They, they promised that. It seems, too, that they're able to, despite the unprecedented Israeli strikes on their territory and on their infrastructure, they're able to maintain chains of command and everything. So this is really quite the unprecedented operation. Yeah, it's, it's really shocking at how quickly and swiftly the Israeli military and the Israeli political machine reacted to this particular um, this particular event. It's almost like Netanyahu and his coalition, despite well, the year, I mean, we could look back almost to early 2022 when all these political um, uprisings began in Israel. And Israel is very politically divided amongst itself, not just the legal disputes, but also the, uh, I believe they had a Supreme Court reform and the parliament was essentially tearing at itself. So the um, the Knesset was very much divided, and Netanyahu, his head was on the on the chopping block, so to speak. He was uh, probably not going to win a single election following this, following the next one, and in fact, it was going to be quite rough for him. And again, uh, it's similar to maybe you could say, like if we, if we speak about provocations and the fact that Hamas was supported by Netanyahu, it is very convenient for Netanyahu for Hamas to commit such such I guess a powerful and uh, you could say almost atrocious type attack against, say, a civilian Israeli population living conveniently almost completely disarmed outside of the Gaza Strip and so essentially you have you have you know Hamas militants killing 500 plus Israeli settlers with you know and probably just as many Israeli military officers and private members of the Israeli army and and then you have an, an opportunity to actually 
go into Gaza and clear it all up and have that excuse, have the international community behind you. And I guess this is not just like my opinion or it's not just the typical conspiracy opinion. Those living in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Palestine, in some of these Orthodox monasteries have these opinions too, like very eloquently said by Mother Iafrosinia from Jerusalem, a Russian Orthodox nun who has been living in the Holy Land for the last 30 years. So she's a local resident of Jerusalem. She's a citizen of Israel at this point. And she just basically said, look, um, we've heard so many missiles fly overhead in Jerusalem. It's no, it's unprecedented. Where did Hamas get all this armament? Get all these armaments? And she's saying this on Russian television. And she says, "Look, in her opinion, Netanyahu was responsible for the 2003 Iraq War as much as the U.S. was. He helped provoke that particular conflict with the false flags." So this nun is very much switched on, right? She knows about the fact that the Iraq War was completely, essentially, a hoax in order to oust Saddam. And Saddam's no friend of Israel, and you know, maybe not even a friend of Orthodox Christians, frankly, around the world, but. Still, this nun's very, very well read on geopolitics. And so she essentially says, yes, so Netanyahu, he's well-versed in psyops and well-versed in false flags. He's been doing it since 9-11, since 2003. And especially if, if we look back at 9-11, I mean, if Mossad was involved in that, in the Twin Tower bombings, and we have to consider that, you know, most likely the evidence, especially contemporary evidence now that Freedom of Information Act is kicking in, we are receiving a lot of a lot of, uh, a lot of really direct information. It probably wasn't Al-Qaeda, especially given the information we have now. And of course, there's probably an entire episode we could dedicate to that. But nevertheless, suspicion falls on Netanyahu for actually even partially arming Hamas, because we have seen, and in Ukraine itself, we have seen Ukrainians auditing and even raiding the homes of various ministers and politicians because they found actually Ukrainian arms in the hands of Hamas. So how did these uh, how did these Ukrainian weapons and weapons from the United States and weapons from Europe, which were designated to actually go to Ukraine, how did they end up in the Gaza Strip? Again, questions who exactly, you know, funded Hamas at this point. It probably wasn't just uh, the crowdfunding efforts of the you know, brave and I guess repressed oppressed Palestinian people. You know, something something much larger is at play. And again, the nun also says that look, the goal of everything, the the end position of not just Netanyahu, but the radical um or you can say Orthodox Talmudic Jewish uh, religious elite behind Israel. This, but you know, they are planning for the construction of the third temple. They are trying to provoke a destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque through some particular way in order to build the third temple. She says that the they already have a budget allocated, all the building materials are prepared, and they've even brought in five uh, red Haifa calves in order to be slaughtered on the altar once the third temple is restored. And these uh, five calves need to be so essentially it's cows which are, need to be a certain type of color, a certain breed, and a, of a certain purity in order to be sacrificed to their to their God, who, again, their God is not the Trinity. It isn't our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is some other deity which they're going to be worshiping at this temple. Definitely, probably not a very good one, let's just say. And so essentially, we have Orthodox nuns and monks essentially giving their opinion online. Again, very provocative thoughts, uh, but I think it's worth taking into account that, look, the, the Orthodox world is not essentially standing behind Netanyahu Yahoo in this. If anything, he's the bad guy behind all of this, despite the fact that Hamas may have actual, you know, radical Islamic elements in it. For example, calling for jihad. I mean, these things are quite foreign to us Christians anyway, right? But I think there, there is an element of sympathy we could have for the Palestinians and we really should have because, you know, for example, the the Palestinian the Palestinians have been getting oppressed. The Orthodox Church have spoken out in their support, and the Israelis have have in fact provoked this conflict. And the provocation perhaps even goes into, as I said, areas of of the false flags, of the psyops, of things which are incredibly negative to you know any sort of peace agreement in the Middle East between these two sides. And so I think it's uh, it, we should keep that in mind.
Yeah, and you talk about the nun. That was really such a fantastic clip. You can watch the whole thing on the World War Now Twitter. But she talked about the red heifers and all that stuff. And I want to also bring everyone's attention. I'm sure people saw this clip. I was actually the first one to post it on Twitter. It got picked up by multiple other big accounts. But Rabbi Chaim Richman, he was the longtime director of the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, which the entire goal of the Temple Institute is to see the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, breed the proper red heifers, have all the dimensions of the temple properly, you know, from you know, the Torah and everything. But he said on his podcast right after the war broke out, he's talking about the Christian countries and, you know, their, in his mind, I guess, their lack of fervent support for Israel. And he basically says that, and he's talking to a Christian on this podcast. He says Christians are mistaken for worshiping one Jew and should instead worship all Jews as Jews die for Christian sins every day. So, you know, if you're a Christian and you somehow think that the Israelis are the ones to support and that they were right to storm the Al-Aqsa Mosque and that Muslims responding this way is completely ridiculous and Christians should be against it. Just know that that's their perspective. That's their plan. It's the same people that killed Jesus Christ trying to implement the same satanic agenda. If anything, it's even worse because they've had generations now to write the Talmud and we we know what's in the Talmud, right? So, you know, it's all a very, it's tough, you know, because these things get banned on Twitter. Apparently, you know, Palestinians that signed an anti-Israel statement are getting their faces and names doxxed with a truck that drives around Harvard blaring everything. So it's really terrible, you know, we're on like, you know, sixth generation warfare at this point, the level of, you know, Marshall McLuhan said World War III is an information war with, you know, no distinction between civilian military targets, you know, it's just full spectrum dominance. And that's what we're seeing today. But I want to also talk about, to transition a little bit to the real politics of all this, I'm going to talk about Putin and Erdogan, Zirinovsky, everybody's favorite, you know, eight times vaxxed, you know, rest in, may he rest in peace. But he actually, we know that he accurately predicted the 2022 special military operation, but in 2019, he said this, these are the last elections in Ukraine because Ukraine will cease to exist. By 2024, a conflict will break out in the Middle East and everyone will simply forget what Ukraine is because Iran is not the DPRK or Vietnam or Kosovo. The most terrible events will happen here. So it seems that the elders, the elders of Zion, you know, they let Zirinovsky into the room, <laughs> maybe to see, uh, to see what the plan is because he seems to really be calling everything right here. And of course, we know that this will eventually lead to the clash. We always talk about the eventual Turkey-Russia clash and the broader war eventually brings in NATO and the United States and China comes in. And of course, amidst all of this, we're seeing those lines be drawn. Of course, China is supporting an independent Palestine. But some of the most interesting reactions I want to talk about are, first, I just want to say what Erdogan has said. Erdogan immediately you know, condemned America's aggressive response in the Eastern Mediterranean, which makes sense, that's his backyard. And he very much supported the Palestinians, and he's really been pushing the Muslim angle. And of course, this is after he won the election, so he's really going to be flexing his Muslim credentials, doesn't feel the need to play the secular game as much anymore. But the interesting thing he said recently, and this is after Anthony Blinken went to Israel and said, you know, I stand before you not as the not as the Secretary of State of the United States, but as a Jew. You know, much like Rishi Sunak said before all those Indians and Hindus, like, I stand before you not as the Prime Minister, but as a Hindu. And Erdogan says, Blinken says that he approaches Israel not as a foreign minister, but as Jewish. What kind of approach is this? If someone says, I'm approaching the region as a Muslim, what will you say? Which, you know, that's a good point. Of course, a lot of anti, I'm no fan of Islam or anything, but the, you know, it's almost like, it feels like it's 2002 again, the level of anti-Muslim rhetoric we're seeing on the timeline from, you know, American Zionists and American so-called conservatives that are just itching to get us into a war with Iran over this. But 
I mean, Erdogan's reaction has been very interesting, and Putin's reaction has also been very interesting. Putin has basically said that the Israelis going into Gaza, it's a war crime. It could lead, the Russian foreign minister has talked about how this could lead to literally the Third World War, a regional conflict without barriers that could expand in an unlimited capacity. So this is really, this is really unprecedented. They've introduced a plan for peace in the UN, you know, to get the civilians out of there to immediately halt the Israeli shelling and the ground invasion that I believe as we're recording this is in its early stages. So Dimitri, I'm wondering your thoughts on these two reactions as well as just the other regional actors. There's just so much to talk about. We have to talk about Egypt, Iran, the Houthis in Yemen, the UAE, the Saudi Arabia. I mean, what, what, are your, what, what do you think is the most relevant amidst all of this? I think Putin's reaction, firstly, is not surprising. Uh, Russia does need to take a pro-Palestinian stance, given that many of Russia's uh, Russian dual citizens, you can say, those who with dual Russian and Israeli citizenship, have on on one hand, again, completely gone against Russia's position in the SMO over the last year and a half. So a lot of them have left to actually go live in Israel, including people like Chubais, uh, Maxim Galkin, Ala Pugachova. Like there's some of these famous celebrities, journalists, uh, media creators, and you can find their YouTube channels. If you find a Russian YouTube channel, Channel has over a million subscribers. It's most likely run by a Russian-Israeli dual citizen, who most likely is against this special military operation. But you have a lot of these really famous, um, well-to-do Israeli-Russian, um, uh, I guess you can say, co-ethnics, and they're essentially turning against the Russian position um, uh, in the SMO. And so, uh, again, I don't think Putin can make it, make a direct bet on this particular part of this particular fifth column in Russia, this uh, Jewish elite in Russia at the moment, I think they're unreliable. And they're also, they're very much dependent on the United States because the United States, of course, upholds you can what you could call the status quo in the Middle East. I don't want to say peace of the Middle East because this is whatever's happening now and whatever has been happening last year and previous years of the oppression of Gazans is certainly not a peace. If anything, it's this demonic, oppressive peace, which you know destroys lives and livelihoods and spiritual lives of those involved you know, down down on the ground. But nevertheless, Putin, you know, of course, spoke out in favor of the Palestinians at least three times since the conflict began. And it's very much unequivocally his state. Uh, you know, the BBC, funny enough, publishing articles literally five hours ago stating Putin is ready to take advantage of the Israeli, Israeli Gazan war. It's like, okay, well, it's not that Russia's take, uh, looking to take advantage. It it gains an advantage from this conflict just by default, just by the fact that it's distracting America and NATO and the powers of the world away from the Ukrainian support, away from supporting Zelensky and from supporting the Ukraine, or even focusing on creating more false flags in that particular region of the world. So Russia benefits, I think, whether Putin wants to or not. I mean, it's just this, it's just what's happening. And again, Russians should take full advantage of this particular uh, situation, you know, throw in United Nations resolutions, build up multipolarity, you know, post the BRICS summit. I mean, we are seeing the Russian position in the world improve and increase and multiply uh, several times. So again, it's probably a good thing for Russia. But again, the Russian state does need to draw a certain line. Like at what point do they actually intervene on the side of the Palestinians? Or even, again, probably not the Palestinians, but the Syrians, because Israel may, again, in their blood first, and we've, we've been seeing this call for violence and vengeance spread you know throughout uh, israeli israeli twitter and even i would say ethnic jewish twitter uh, on mass so we've seen figures like ben shapiro and even folks who have associated themselves with jewish businesses like jordan dr jordan peterson essentially we have seen a call to violence that has been unprecedented and we have and this call to violence conrad is not the same as what had what we've seen in russia ukraine so we've never seen the russians ever call 
to arms in the same way as the Israelis have in the um, in this particular conflict. In only one week, it seems the rhetoric has surpassed that of any pro-Russian patriotic uh, patriotic spokespersons over the last year. It's it's really even Prigozhin's um you know Prigozhin's humor and Prigozhin's statements are not are not anything like that like we've seen Israeli ministers, former presidents, well, former even, prime ministers. It's even yeah. worse than that. It's like it's mm-hmm. even worse than that. I mean like. I remember people would get banned for just expressing support for Russia at all, whereas now people aren't getting banned for literally saying Palestinians should be genocided. I support cleaning them out, like all sorts yeah. of these, like literally openly genocidal mm-hmm. statements. Apparently, no one's getting banned on Twitter for that. So, as someone who was literally banned for no reason at one point during the 2020 election cycle, you know, I'm not very. It's it's hard for me to have sympathy with all these all these Zionists acting, you know, crying foul, especially as someone who's actually paid attention to the Israel-Palestine conflict for the past five years. Yeah, there's an actual double standard at play. And Elon Musk, I don't think he has any much authority. Remember, he did meet with Bibi Netanyahu about, was it two and a half, three weeks ago? And so I think he's really much under the pump. We spoke about this in the last episode, but he's definitely under pressure from a certain lobby, maybe legally speaking as well, you know, considering that there is this ADL lawsuit kind of looming over him. So I don't think he has any power in order to suppress some of these voices, but we are, but we, we as the audience, we as the listeners, we are seeing these uh, particularly humanizing and again it's th- these are demons acting for people right these are demons playing on the passions of people and even on the passions of israelis and and ethnic jews around the world essentially building building them up towards bloodlust and vengeance we talk about you know uh, negative things in life such as you know we, the the typical sin of course is lust and how pornography plays on that and how that industry is created in order to destroy people through that particular sin but we don't have to like let's not forget the fact that other sins exist very major ones one of which is anger and anger Unlike gluttony, which you know, gluttony leads to this obesity crisis we see around the world, and pornography and lust leads to you know people wrecking their relationships and divorce rates being over fifty percent and all this other degeneracy. But anger leads to what we're seeing in Israel, Gaza right now. So it's almost like Dante's Inferno. You do have different sins acting in the world on mass, and we're seeing like, and even fear. You could say fear and uh, servilism leading to what happened during the COVID pandemic where people just bowed down to idols and bowed down to false pretexts of, you know, not attending church, things of that sort, and, you know, taking vaccines, but just bizarre behavior. So we see these sins, like, on, on a collective level. And right now we're witnessing the sin of anger and vengeance and blood, you know, the sort of blood first that we read about from world history from back in the day. And it's just quite... You know, it's quite outstanding because it's hard to ignore and it's hard to close your eyes upon. And again, the the, the videos now with modern technology are, uh, they kind of explicate and they really paint this very vivid picture of what's happening on the ground. Like you mentioned, all the footage we have of Gazan children. Keep in mind, by the way, Gaza in and of itself has a very large child to adult ratio. Is that correct, Conrad? Like, I think almost a third, if not half of the population of Gaza are actually children. They have very high birth rates, which is great. Actually, surprisingly enough, like most of the children actually, despite the lack of education, they're actually quite smart um, on, on IQ tests. So the, the Palestinian kids are actually very smart, witty good kids. It's just, unfortunately, because the adults in the room can't get along, and also there are literal satanic elites running the entire show, the Palestinian kids are the ones suffering, these innocents. And so it is in a way, like, again, not to get too biblical, but I mean, we can get biblical the entire podcast, but frankly, it is a Herod, Herod slaying of the of, of the innocents again happening. You know, there, there is a massive child sacrifice in these lands. They were run by uh, Baal and Moloch priests once upon a time, which, you know, Christ, I mean, you know, God actually ordered the, the saint of the Old Testament, Joshua, to wipe them out at one point. 
just recall in the Old Testament, so Joshua was sent after the um, repose of Moses to cleanse the Holy Land of these particular people. And I wonder what they were doing in this place. Was it similar to what we're seeing now? The slaughter of innocent children, uh, up to, I believe, close to 500 at this point in one week. 500 children slain in one week through not, not abortion and other despicable acts of sacrifice, but literally through armed conflict. I mean, this is some unprecedented numbers. It's very much satanic in, and, in its origin. And I don't think the calls to further cleanse Gaza are justified in any way. Like, you know, we can speak about Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, even some of the people opposing them, like Andrew Tate. But I want to say that it's unfortunate because we have figures like Matt Walsh, right? Let's, let's talk about the conservatives who actually were on the right path. We have figures like Matt Walsh, these big YouTubers, big Christian nationalist type figures, and even um, who's that fellow uh, with the large forehead? I apologize. Um, Turning Point USA CEO. Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk. Yes. Charlie Kirk. Again, great tweets from him. He's been actually turning his position, becoming more conservative over the years. Suddenly this conflict occurs and he's very pro-Israel. It's like, it's what is this, this issue? It always turns these people back to, you know, it's like a, the leash is being tugged. And again, they return back to their masters and they return back to the just basic talking points, which really nobody asked. For. Yeah, well, Nick Fuentes made a great point that all these social conservatives, these people that want to close the border, these people that want this stuff, they made this quote-unquote strategic alliance with the Jewish Zionists, thinking, okay, I just never complain about Zionism, I never talk about Jewish power, I never do any of these things, and they will sort of allow me to then get some of my agenda across the table, whether it's no gay marriage, no more abortion, closing the border, deporting illegal immigrants. But guess what? That never happens. The Zionists get everything. And you get nothing. And, you know, I would get banned off YouTube and other places if I really said, you know, the connection there, basing on who is, you know, getting your getting the support of Christians and, you know, Gentiles worldwide while also maintaining policies that will ultimately destroy them as their independent power structures. You know, that's, I'm sure you can assume who I'm talking about here. But unfortunately, you're very much right that this anger seems is only going to get worse. And again, as the ground invasion begins, this is from Netanyahu, it's only the beginning. So the idea that this is just going to, I mean, again, we know these Jewish Zionists, they, they think about losing someone in a very different way than anybody else. Like if someone they don't know, if they find out that they're Jewish, you know, some of these people then immediately want, you know, they need at least five of the other side dead to make up for the one, you know, that has, has passed away on their side. So the, the fact, the idea that this is just going to tone down, it seems to be getting less and less likely as the days go on. But you know, before we talk about, uh, I guess it's a good transition to transition to actually talking about Russia, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, you know, he, much like Putin has supported, he obviously being a Muslim has come out even stronger in support of Palestine. And that may have something to do with the fact that a mosque in Abu Ghosh near Jerusalem was struck by Israeli fire, and that mosque is actually called Kadyrov's Mosque. So before we have a brief interlude into Ukraine and Avdivka, Dmitry, what's What's the Kadyrov situation? Is that we don't, we know that Putin has a lot. You know, Putin is the only one really keeping Kadyrov in power. It seems that they're on the same page on this one. At this point, Kadyrov is is a very big uh, social media personality, and we do have to be aware he he is very PR trained, and he does have he does have an awareness of exactly what to do on social media in order to get clicks. He is like he's an Andrew level adept type poster online. He knows exactly what will make him viral. And so, of course, he'll make a statement such as, we will send the Chechens to save the Palestinians and we'll, save the Chechen we'll send the Chechens to take Jerusalem and protect the Al-Aqsa Mosque from the uh, Israelis. Despite the fact that the custodian of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and this is going off, you know, basically, historically, is actually King Abdullah of Jordan. 
So the Jordanians have already stated that they're protecting the Al-Aqsa Mosque on behalf of all the entire Islamic world. And again, Jared Kushner made this very clear, but Jared Kushner obviously has a very dark agenda for the Middle East, including Israeli dominance. But he, yeah, he, that's the argument he uses is that, well, the Muslims shouldn't really get upset because the Al-Aqsa Mosque is already protected by King Abdullah just across the Jordan River. So don't worry about it. We'll, the Israelis won't do anything to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But nevertheless, Kadyrov... Naturally, we've seen what we've seen here, what he did during the Rostov Wagner situation. The Kadyrov Chechens from the National Guard never ended up even reaching Rostov or even getting into a conflict with the Chechens. So I, I doubt he could, if they didn't reach Rostov and they got stuck in traffic, I doubt they can drive all the way from the Caucasus. Uh, south through Armenia, Azerbaijan, you know, all these countries in order to reach. I think that's almost as as crazy as the tal as ta as the Taliban, who in fact have also announced that please Iran, Iraq, Jordan, open the borders. We will liberate, uh, we will li liberate Jerusalem from the entity. <laughs> it's just like okay, I mean, sure, I. I think that's you know possible. It's possible to have a caravan travel like that, but again, realistically speaking, a ground invasion of that sort would not be possible without air support, because we know Israel's um, air dominance is so strong, especially and, and given the two aircraft carriers in the sea. So anybody kind of uh, in their heads uh, having hypotheticals like, "Wow, what if the Muslims send this massive convoy of like a hundred thousand troops, you know, towards Israel?" Yeah, it's possible, but there is that issue of complete air dominance by Israel as well as the United States. So how do you combat? that the only country in the region i believe that has any anything equivalent would probably be egypt as well as the some of the the naj hijaz countries saudi arabia qatar united arab emirates have those modern planes and the russian air force stationed in syria so and, and of course turkey but again so these are the only countries who could potentially do anything in terms of provide opposition to the Israeli Air Force, which has essentially dominates the area, bombs Damascus, bombs Syria, bombs any targets in Iraq at once. It's, his convoys will not make it in time. But Kadyrov in general, there's been a lot of news about him like recently. I'm not sure if we want to get into it now, but because again, the the capital of Chechnya, Grozny, had its 205 year anniversary, which 205 years is a bit odd. You know, naturally, 200 years would have been a bigger anniversary. But it seems that on the, every anniversary of the city, the Chechens have a massive, massive celebration, and Kadyrov gives an epic speech. Funny enough, in this speech, and this may just be a bit off the off the side, but funny enough, Kadyrov did state very clearly that, and very explicitly, he stated that Joseph Stalin, the Soviet dictator, was a traitor. The traitor of the Soviet Union, a traitor of the, of the Chechen people, because he essentially expelled Chechen people for collaborating with the Third Reich and the Nazis during World War II. He expelled them from the Caucasus for some time. I think it was until the years of Khrushchev. So for like 10, 15 years, Chechens were sent to basically Siberian various gulags. And of course, you know, Stalin was an absolute monster in terms of oppressing various peoples, including, and of course, especially the Russian people and the Orthodox people, but also various national minorities. But funny enough, Chich Kadyrov allows himself such a, um, I guess, such a based statement uh, condemning Stalin. Which is, you know, Stalin, calling Stalin traitor. I don't remember any Russian politician even doing that. Besides Zhirinovsky, who at one point in the early 2000s straight up said that Hitler was better than Stalin. And like that's, and he said there's like, there's no question about it. He's just like, yeah, of course Hitler was better than Stalin. Stalin was the worst person of, of human history. It's like, and he, yeah, that was Zhirinovsky's opinion. But yeah, Kadyrov's were very curious. And I guess the, the other big news about Kadyrov is, and this went kind of viral on Twitter a little bit. And it's very negative and it's very ugly, but Kadyrov's consistent torture of the fellow Nikita Zhurovlyov who burnt the Quran earlier this year. And this story just keeps getting uglier, right? Not just Kadyrov's son, Adam Kadyrov, who beats him up in prison, which is completely illegal. And there's a human rights investigation in Russia. The Ombudsman of Human Rights is actually looking into this. There's a case open. But 
the beating up of this fellow, and this fellow, mind you, uh, he's he's an absolute idiot. He's obviously a traitor, and he's doing prison time. But, uh, but prisoners shouldn't be abused in prison. Like, the actual prison time itself is the ret retribution for their crimes. They don't need to be beaten additionally, or humiliated, or even hear this. Kadyrov released a clip of the young man actually standing in front of him and saying that he wants to convert to Islam. This is just bizarre. So what, uh, we're, we're forcing these young people to convert to Islam now? Again, very bizarre clip. And again, Kadyrov says, look, you're not genuine about your conversion to Islam. You need to study more. It's like, what? No, he doesn't. I mean, anyways, it's just, again, Kadyrov's running his own show on social media. And uh, he's obviously making bank from the Palestine-Israel conflict. And naturally, he needs to, I mean, recall his position constantly changed, even with the Wagner Rebellion. So this particular figure, I don't think it's as serious. Although... Me and you, Conrad, I think we would support something like the Chechens, you know, going to Israel and supporting the Palestinian cause. I think that wouldn't be the worst, you know, all these Chechens who post TikTok videos, I think it wouldn't be the worst outcome for them to actually commit and put their boots on the ground and actually defend defend their Islamic faith uh, instead of like pro provoking various things in Russia and actually causing trouble. So nevertheless, I think his statements were completely fictitious and, you know, somewhat comical. Well, regarding the comment about Stalin, Haas bros must be absolutely seething. Abraham Alliance communist bros, you know, not not a good day for them. But regarding the actual situation in Ukraine, the uh, battle seems to have shifted to focus on Avdivka, which, you know, for us on this show, we started the show when Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson, Zaporozhye were officially signed into the Russian Federation. And that came with what everyone thought at the time was a big push around the Donetsk city region. And of course, that basically lasted a few days and never actually did anything. And since then, this Avdivka has been the most built-up Ukrainian fortification along the front line, basically, that they've always had this foot in the door of Donetsk City and have been able to inflict horrible pain and torture on the civilization and the civilians there. So Russia seems to finally be committing large forces to this battle. And they've, you know, they've taken heavy casualties, Ukraine's taken heavy casualties, but it seems that finally, and now that they may have even waited till this distraction in the Middle East propped up, they seem to be willing to make bigger pushes in some of these directions. I don't know if this will, maybe they want to take Avdivka before their big push, you know, coming up in February 2024. But Dmitry, what are your thoughts on, on the situation there? Yeah, there's been a lot of heavy fighting. Russians essentially are attempting to surround the Divka with what one in the Russian the Russian military they call a cauldron, surround it essentially and destroy the forces within that particular cauldron, within that valley, on that particular hill. Or in this in this case, Avdiivka is is a quite a uh, quite a destroyed distraught town at this point. But yeah, the Ukrainian military has been building it up, and Avdiivka is very famous for bombing Donetsk. It, it's located only five six kilometers north of Donetsk, and so. All the stories you hear about Donetsk being bombed by Ukrainian military, those are actually flying in those artillery ships. That bombardment is occurring out of that particular base of Ukraine, of Dievka. And it's it's also historically, it's one of those places where since 2017, it's one of the last places where Givi actually fought against the Ukrainians prior to his assassination. So, you know, the, the Donetsk People's Republic has been trying to take this particular city for many, many years now and unsuccessfully in Russians. Uh, look, it's not the Ukrainians not giving up easily at this point. American media and Western media is reporting at least a loss of between 10 to 15 Russian tanks as well as 30 armored units, armored vehicles, so armored troop carriers and such. 
uh, essentially during this conflict in the last week, trying to take the city of Avzivka. Uh, not a city, a town. It's more or less like a town or a village. It's quite small. But yes, of course, if Russia ends up taking it, it'll be another, you can say, um, maybe another Bakhmut, perhaps a less bloodier one, or even uh, maybe a small Mariupol-type victory. But again, Russians haven't had a victory like this in a long time. So there's definitely a positive development on the Russian front. The Russians are, again, on the offensive, taking back these key areas. And for those of you who, who say, well, well, why aren't the Russians striking for peace? Mind you, Avdivka is that is that point from which many cathedrals and churches were actually bombed in Donetsk for many, many years. When we read about, well, this monastery was bombed, this church was bombed. Where are the bombs flying from? Where Where is exactly is the Ukrainian artillery and missile launchers stationed? They're stationed there in that particular town. It's one of the key points in the entire Donetsk region. So again, a huge victory for Russia. And again, the victory is not sealed yet. Russia could still retreat and uh you know it's it's not a solidar victory type yet but it could be an ugladar if you recall ugladar was that failure by the russians to essentially uh approach bakhmut from the south side and they lost i believe from between 30 and 35 tanks and it was just an entire failed expedition early in 2023 that was prior to bakhmut falling and ugladar is an example of a failed operation solidar north of bakhmut uh, is you know considered like a, a good type of operation so more of a solidar less of a ugladar right so anyways uh it's well, big hopes for the russian army here yeah but generally speaking outside of the avdivka front things have been you know suspiciously quiet across across the front line russia is making gains but zelensky himself is freaking out of course john kirby white house spokesperson for the security council of the united states he said that basically ukraine needs to expect to see the end of the rope as far as the aid is concerned. They're trying to get this 200 million through, but after that, you know, especially if this thing keeps going in Israel, they're going to be scrambling to give hundreds of millions to Israel, refill that Iron Dome, give them ammunition. I mean, we've already got special forces on the ground doing hostage negotiation work. You know, this has escalated beyond American involvement in Ukraine day one, because spoiler alert, the United States government cares a lot more about the lives of Jewish people than they care about the lives of Christian Slavs in Ukraine. Sorry to burst anybody's bubble there. But as we're seeing this go on, you know, we're probably going to see, as Scott Ritter said, you know, the liberation of much more territory. Zelensky is going to be forced to the negotiating table. And frankly, I don't think Putin probably won't even negotiate with Zelensky. He will like completely oust him and basically then negotiate with a puppet that will give him everything he wants. I see that ultimately being the outcome that we're going to see there in Ukraine. But you speak about the bombing of churches and this over the course of the discourse this week in the fog of war for a brief hour, we thought that St. Porfirio's Church, the third oldest church in the Holy Land, um, under the Jerusalem Patriarchate, it, we thought that it had been destroyed. But thankfully, we got an update from that church's Facebook page that it has not been destroyed, that they are housing refugees and, you know, trying to stay safe. And it's important because that, that kind of brings to light, you know, it, it, people are like, why did people think it would be destroyed? Because we, we all know, and those who have studied history and those that have been following this understand how the Israeli forces and the Zionist forces have treated the Christian population, especially when you compare it to the Palestinian Authority. Because, I mean, just for a few interesting statistics, is that the Palestinian Authority actually really does try to empower the Christian populations, even though they've consistently shrunk. Like, for example, in Bethlehem, where Christians are barely 20% of the population, they were 83% before, you know, the Zionist occupation began in the 40s. And Ramallah, the capital of Palestine, has a Christian mayor, so both those towns have Christian mayors, even though, you know, Ramallah is only 8% Christian. So these are places that, you know, they, even the Muslims there actually pay respect to the Christian heritage by allowing the Christians there to remain 
or they would have traditionally been in power had they not been driven out by the Zionist authority. There's three Christian ministers in the Palestinian government, even though there's only five, they're only 5% of the Palestinian population. So overall, obviously there's no Christian ministers in the Israeli Knesset, let me tell you that much. And the amount of treatment, we've all seen the videos of how Christians are treated in Israel, of course, but regarding that initial Zionist push back in the 40s, I posted about this recently on Twitter, there's a document uh, that was presented to the United Nations by the Arab League, and it this is in 1948, and it basically recounts some of the initial atrocities committed. Obviously, a lot of it's against mosques and Muslims, but there's explicit sections about what they did to the Christians. So this document's called Jewish Atrocities in the Holy Land, a memorandum presented by the representative of the Arab High Commission for Palestine at UNO. And basically, it talks about, I mean, all throughout the early 20th century, every Orthodox bishop, every Pope, Anglican bishops, they all were making statements about the treatment of Christians in the Holy Land. And all the leaders in the Holy Land, the bishops, like the Orthodox, the Jerusalem Patriarchate, the Coptic Patriarchs, the Armenians, the, the Latins there, the Melkites, the, Mel the Maronites, all these people. The sign of manifesto, it said, We can state that the largest part of the shells falling on the Holy Sepulchre and on churches, convents, and Christian institutions, as listed by the committee, are of Jewish origin. The manifesto continued, We declare the truth and an objective fact when we add, The Arabs have stated they respected the holy places, the churches, and convents, and the Red Cross institutions. In fact, they have respected them up to the present time. The statement, addressed to religious and political authorities throughout the world, added, From what was taking place, it appears, one, that it was the Jews who began on the morning of Saturday, May 15th, to occupy by armed force the convent of Notre Dame de France, the Redemptionist, sisters, and the French hospital, which they fortified and from which they began to fire on the holy city. Two, that they occupied likewise on Mount Zion, the monastery of German Benedictine Fathers, and two convents of the Holy Trinity and St. George, belonging to the Greek Orthodox Church, which served for military operations and from which they fired on the city of Jerusalem. They occupy today buildings which fly fa flags of the Holy See of France, of the Holy Sepulchre, and of the International Red Cross. The manifesto included the following list of institutions from which Jews directed their fire on the Holy City. There's an Orthodox Greek convent of St. George, a convent of Notre Dame de France, convent of Redemptionist Sisters you know, the Italian hospital, all these sorts of things. The manifesto charged that some Israeli fighters fired shells from the Hebrew University and Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus, and also from two large synagogues in the Old City, which Arab forces eventually demolished. It is said that the following institutions had been hit by shell fire, and that these seized by Jews had been shelled subsequently by Arab forces. A whole bunch more convents, Armenian convents, Greek Orthodox convents, you know, Jerusalem Patriarchate, Syriac churches, you know, the Church of Saints Constantine and Helen, near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Seminary of St. Anne, uh, the Orthodox Armenian convent, hunted by a hundred shells, fired from that Benedictine monastery that had previously been taken before. And all these things went on back then, and even back then it appeared, and this, this is continuing in the manifesto, stressing that the Christian world seemed to be almost indifferent to, shell, to shelling Jerusalem by an Arab legion before the truce. Jews boasted it would not take them more than a fortnight to conquer the whole city, nine-tenths of which they hold already. If they don't claim Jerusalem yet as the capital city of their state, it will no doubt be an essential instrument of bargaining during peace negotiations. Then goes on to talk about how they would go into these cities, they, would, they killed Christians, they would desecrate the altars at Christian churches and whatnot. And again, in America, there wasn't as strong of a reaction. There was still a stronger reaction than there was today because some people cared, but this is still, you know, a few decades after the Schofield Bible's proliferation. So, you know, the consequences and the lack of Christian reaction around the world due to Christian Zionism and dispensationalism, that was already being seen at the beginning of, you know, the Nakbas and everything that went on at the beginning of this, of the Jewish settlement of, of the Levant, which, you know, again, this is bloody, bloody blood feuds that we're still seeing to this day. 
you know, again, the Jews have a long memory. They're still mad at anybody that associates with the Roman Empire because of what they did to their ancestors. So if they're going to think about that, wouldn't it make sense for them, these Muslims, to be upset for something that happened to their literal grandfathers? Like, they would have heard the stories. So, you know, one can't call the other, you know, unforgiving. You know, there needs to be forgiveness definitely on both sides here. But, yeah, as far as the... As far as the actual current situation goes, we haven't heard of as many churches destroyed yet, although in the midst of all the shelling we're seeing right now, I wouldn't be surprised if even St. Porfirios, like we mentioned, had sustained some damage. But, I mean, there's also churches in the West Bank. The West Bank is going to be seeing more and more violence. So that's really the main thing that we're praying for. People say, what side are you on in this conflict? You know, sure, we are anti-Zionist and against the Israeli actions in Gaza, but ultimately we're on the side of the Christians in the region and explicitly the Orthodox Christians. Yeah, it's, I had some uh, some of my family members actually message some of the nuns uh, on the holy in the Holy Land around Jerusalem at the moment, and they do report seeing you know hearing you know a huge amount of explosions occur. But yes, no Orthodox targets have been explicitly hit yet, and the Church of Saint Porphyrius in Gaza, one of the oldest churches in the Levant, is still standing, which is great. But notice if you even look on, I guess. Open up a map, a map of Google. It is right there in that in in that particular corner, a potential target of the Israeli offensive. You know, not it's not saying the Israeli offensive explicitly, or maybe they do explicitly want to destroy the temple in Gaza, but potentially it will be on the, you know, so to speak, in the line of fire. Right, considering the fact that there's they seem to be carpet bombing Gaza pretty hard at the moment, so there is a potential risk there that. And again, for for international relations and I guess PR purposes, it will heavily depend upon which side hits an Orthodox church or, or monastery first, right? And this is I'm not saying that this will make the Israelis somehow the good guys if Hamas accidentally or purposefully shoot an RPG or a missile into a church, right? Because we need to just consider the fact that you know accidents do happen from both sides. So it's not that if a church gets hit by a missile or a bomb, it's not it doesn't explicitly mean that that church was hit. On, you know, on purpose, because in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, both sides have accidentally already hit both monasteries and churches, and both sides have actually purposefully hit monasteries and churches. And in fact, before I continue about Palestine and Israel, um, one of the news from Ukraine was the third largest monastery, the Svetogorsk Monastery, which is actually in the background of our Afer Hour episodes. It is that beautiful monastery in the hillsides of the Donbass. It was hit by an RPG, essentially a rocket launcher, from 500 meters away so less than a kilometer away some and yes it's like who did it right here's the question well if you draw a circle 500 meters around around the monastery the entire monastery is in ukrainian hands it is completely controlled behind the ukrainian front lines so ukrainians have been shooting rocket launches at the monastery for no reason whatsoever completely unprovoked several times rockets were launched at very quite close range, under one kilometer, and the Metropolitan Arseny of Svetogorsk, the caretaker of the monastery, essentially gave a five-minute-long sermon at the at a liturgy last week, and he basically just said, "Look, this is like this is disgusting." Well, even not even last week; it was literally yesterday. Uh, unfortunately, the Ukrainian website of the uh, the Ukrainian church website openly stated that, "Look, the mon we're not sure who shot the monastery, even though it was explicitly Ukraine." But in the case of you know Ukraine and all of this being tied to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? Because you'd think these places are so far away. It's that we have both Ukrainian, Russian, and Greek elders and saints giving us collective prophecies about potential world wars and conflicts and tying these two conflicts, frankly, together. Yeah, and one of those saints, of course, is 
Elder Lawrence and Saint Lawrence of Chernigov, one of our you know Ukrainian saints, which we mention all the time. Conrad, we speak about him very often, but that's because he actually left a really big inheritance, not just for his folk at the monastery, but for all Russians and Ukrainians. You know, those who who would come after him, and he is one of those saints who lived under Third Reich occupation, lived under Soviet communist occupation, and he died you know during the Soviet years. So he definitely experienced a lot of things. But one of the prophecies he has about the Holy Land specifically, which we'll read out now, so translated by us where he says, He, the Antichrist, will stamp his people with seals. He will hate Christians. The last persecutions will begin against the Christian souls who refuse the seals of Satan. So he's speaking about the mark of the beast here. And uh, the uh, Saint Lawrence says, First, persecution will begin in the lands of Jerusalem. And then the last blood will be shed throughout the world in the name of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Of you, my children, many will see, many will live to see these terrible times. So essentially he's speaking as if the end times will you know, begin somewhere towards the end of the 20th century, if not in the 21st century. So we might be looking at a timeline which is very near to us. But notice how he does mention the lands of Jerusalem, which back then, this is he's speaking about this before the state of Israel was even created, right, Conrad? Think about it. He might he might be giving these prophecies literally under Third Reich occupation in the ninth in the early 1940s, perhaps. You know, so it's really quite curious some of these uh, verbal traditions we have from our saints, even you know, predate. Israel. And one more very interesting prophecy, and this is from uh, Schema Nun Sephora. So essentially, Mother Sephora was a very well-known Russian nun, um, and Schema Nun for that matter, one of the most uh, senior nuns in the entire Russian church. And again, in the Soviet Union, it was quite hard to actually find elders who were nuns. Like these are women who committed themselves to Christ and who've remained in the church for many years. Now, Elder Sephora, I mean, Nun Sephora, she had such an long and interesting life. She lived almost, actually, she lived exactly 101 years old, years. So she was born in 1896, and I think she passed in 1997. So she literally part, like outlived the entire Soviet Union. Very interesting sort of life. She was married at one point, had four children, four daughters. Uh, then her husband passed away um, sometime during World War II, and she became a nun, and she remained a nun for a good 50 to 60 years. So really intense life. And, um, at, and of course, some of her verbal and discussions, as you probably recall from, uh, we spoke to Father Trifon, and Father Trifon recalls some of his discussions with his spiritual father and what kind of advice he would provide him. And essentially, essentially some of that advice was straight up clairvoyant in nature. And a certain abbot, Father Michael Klikovsky, from the click of a village, actually states that when he spoke to nun, Mother Sephora, and uh, her last name is Shnyakina, she essentially gave him very apt, you can say, clairvoyant prophecies about the future of Russia. And he essentially asked about, you know, pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And she's and she says, he recalls, Mother Sephora loved Jerusalem very much, although during her lifetime, she could never visit it. Because she lived in the USSR, it was hard to leave, the, you know, leave Soviet Russia. And But she knew a lot about it. She read books about Jerusalem and the Holy Land, and she knew a lot about the shrines. And then she, she told her spiritual son, uh, Father Michael once, you should go there while you still can. And he says, why? And she says, well, the cities will be closed. It will be impossible to get into Jerusalem in the future. And he's, he thinks to himself, why will Jerusalem be inaccessible? Maybe it'll be a closed territory, perhaps an increase in terrorist attacks, maybe wars. The Mother Sephora didn't really emphasize why the Holy Land and Jerusalem will be closed off to outsiders, especially Russian Orthodox folks traveling there. But she did mention her prophecies continue on, and she's, you know, he... Father Michael asks her, well, what will happen to Russia then? You know, in the, you know, this is the 1990s, she says that, you know, after Gorbachev, there'll be another president, a liberal one. She predicts Yeltsin, and then she says a few more presidents will come. 
and then the best outcome for the Russian people will be an Orthodox Tsar. But only if the Russian people repent and if they conduct missionary work, if they raise and catechize their children in the true Russian Orthodox faith. Or else the communists may return again, perhaps under a different flag and under a different ideology, but with the same intentions. And this is the prophecy essentially paraphrased to us by Father Michael from his, uh, I guess you can say his spiritual mother in this case, Elder and future Saint Sephora, on, on, on whose grave to this day in the Tambov city, just outside of the Tambov city at the click of a village, many miracles still occur. So if any of you are interested, Tambov is a little bit out of the way, but very interesting prophecies there from literally the heartland of Russia, speaking about the Holy Land, Jerusalem, being essentially shut down and you know, major events occurring there. Well, that makes me think, you know, I, we hadn't even thought about this. We've been so enraptured by the war going on, but I have not been to the Holy Land. And I realize I may never be able to make it properly if things go a certain direction, as we've been predicting. But if there's one thing I've also learned from this story you just said, and we also shared on World War Now Twitter, and we mentioned this earlier in the episode, the, the, prof, the not prophecies, but the analysis of Mother Ephrosinia down in the Holy Land itself, speaking to Russians, you know, via, via video conference. But... It, I think it just makes us realize that I think we need to be looking out for our next guest. We need to have some nuns on between Abbot Trifon and his fantastic stories about Mother Susanna and Mother Markella, and now these fantastic prophecies from you know Schema Nun Sephora, Mother of Frosenia. I mean, I think you know I think we should. I think that's our goal. First female guest has to be a nun. New New World War now rule. But in that same vein, you mentioned the kind of pan orthodox nature of these prophecies. And our good friend Panagiotis brought one of these to our attention recently. Be sure to subscribe to the Christian Orthodox Miracles and Prophecies YouTube channel. But Elder Theodore the Cave Dweller, who reposed in 2016, you know, very well bearded fellow. He was on Crete, actually, an island that, you know, has, you know, been growing in population and is becoming more and more relevant in the Greek world. He talked about the current events ultimately that are going on now and you know, depending if things go a certain way, they will be very prescient. He says, my children, you will drink your coffee and you hear that the Jews have hit Persia's nuclear program. And he extrapolates that this will come at the same time or shortly before the fall of Erdogan. And at this point, we've talked about how, yeah, Erdogan, if he does fall, it'll probably be somewhat of an illness-related thing. You know, we've seen all of our sleepy Erdoge memes and Erdogan, you know, stumbling and having to cancel campaign events days before the election. So he seems to have ascended to emperor for life status and his rule simply relies on you know as long as his his heart can continue beating right so you know we obviously know a lot of other greek prophecies about the situation in turkey greece and erdogan and some of them are very you know some of them we, we consider them a bit dramatic and you could say truly greek in their thucydian and kind of historic you know people talk about ancient greek history they're like and then i saw five hundred thousand people die in this battle and it's like well that many people may not have even been on the Greek peninsula at that time, but you know we understand what you what, you, what you're saying here. And in a, in a true sense, I, ch I choose to believe those those true histories, you know. But the uh, there are some Greek prophecies. We talk about Saint Paisios, but there are even others that have that have really, while they may seem dramatic and extreme in some of their prescriptions and some of their predictions, uh, it's just impossible to ignore the prescience based on what's going on right now. 
Yeah, namely, of course, we're speaking about uh, Elder Joseph of Vathapedi, the monastery on Mount Athos. And he, of course, originally was from the island of Cyprus, which is right next door to Crete, where Elder Theodore was from. And Elder Theodore, of course, being one of those rare saints actually from Crete, Crete not producing as much in the monastic tradition or even in terms of saints. But it is quite interesting to hear from at least a future saint from that particular place. But St. Joseph of Vathapedi, very, of course, outspoken saint. He only died in 2009, being born in 19. 21. So his lifespan essentially falls right on our, our era. And he gives some very pretty much accurate prophecies in terms of they are completely in line with the elder traditions of not just the Russian saints, but also those from Mount Athos. And him being there from Mount Athos himself, it's very much it aligns with what uh, Elder Paisios has said as well. So this prophecy you may have heard of it before, it's quite well known. He says, now there'll be a there will be a few events that will take place, military type events and difficult, strenuous ones. And he says, the evil will come from the Jews. America is run by the Jews. The, the devil forces them to destroy the seeds of orthodoxy in both Greece and Russia. This is their main ob obstacle. These countries are their main obstacles to world domination. They will force the Turks to come here to Greece and begin their actions. Although Greece has its own government, the government has neither power nor sovereignty. And this will be the moment when Russia will be forced to move its armies against and push back the Turks. And this is the first part of the prophecy where Elder, Elder Joseph really goes into depth. He really, I mean, it's a, it's quite a loaded, you could say, geopolitical clairvoyant prophecy there, but we still need to take it into account. It, of course, aligns perfectly with everything we've said in the past and even what modern saints have said, told us and even modern elders who, like um, a Metropolitan Neophytos of Morphu. But just continuing now. Events will develop like this. When Russia comes to the aid of Greece, the Americans and NATO will try to prevent this so that there will be no unification, no reunion and no merger of two orthodox peoples. More forces will rise, the Japanese and other, pe other, other peoples. There will be a great massacre on the territory of the former Byzantine Empire. There will be about 600 million people killed alone. The Vatican reunification and the growing role of orthodoxy will take place, will attempt to take place, but it will result in complete destruction of the, Va the Vatican's influence right down to its very foundations. This is how God's providence will turn. So what, what we're seeing here, again, oh. we're spe he's speaking about ecumenism at one point, so potential reunification of the Vatican, but it'll backfire in some capacity. The Vatican will lose all of its power and, of course, uh, will probably will be destroyed right down to its very foundations is what he's saying. And mind you, this particular prophecy, it's not even written down or even passed down to us. There's an audio recording of Elder Joseph actually telling us this. Uh, I believe it's available on YouTube, but, of course, he's speaking in Greek. So Greek speakers out there, you can probably find the audio clip of Elder Joseph actually speaking and mentioning these things. But very interesting, he does mention 600 million people dying in a, in a major global war, which could only be equated to as maybe a third world war at this stage. So quite, um, again, there are other prophecies about wars, which we won't mention on this episode, but these particular prophecies do relate to perhaps the Levant, that Mediterranean region, and of course the Holy Land, which you know is the hot subject at this point. But very, very, um, very, very scary. And of course, these prophecies do move us to pray more, to ask the Lord for mercy, and ask the Lord to give us more strength. You know, moving forward. Yeah, and Elder Joseph of Vatapedi, he's he reposed in two thousand nine, so there's a chance he'll probably be canonized within the next few decades. He was also a disciple of Saint Joseph the Hesychast. So, us Elder Ephraim lovers here in America, we could call Elder Joseph our, you know, our spiritual uncle, if you want to put it that way, right? So. 
Yeah, the uh, the prophecies of Elder Joseph, we've mentioned them a few times back on some early World War Now episodes, much like we talk about some of St. Paisios' prophecies. And remember, St. Paisios, he talks all about the Russians moving against the Turks, not because of some orthodox loyalty to Greece, but because, you know, Greece will be about to face basically destruction. And then other situations, probably what's going on in the Middle East or the Levant, will actually necessitate Russia to move on Turkey and thus coincidentally saving Greece. And then one other thing that I think we need to be sure to talk about is the big flip from Trump. Trump has been trashing Netanyahu behind the scenes. He's been trashing him now recently in public. He, of course, is saying that he himself, if he was in pre- been president, this wouldn't have happened. All sorts of things like that, talking about wanting to make the deal of the century. But the fact that Trump, you know, has betrayed Netanyahu, Trump was, of course, did, did some of the biggest things for Israel in his presidency. But now he's... Uh, you know, he basically has not forgotten Netanyahu's congratulations of Biden. And I don't think he's forgotten that Jared Kushner did a lot of things to really hurt the policy achievements of his presidency. So I think from those two perspectives, he has no love for Netanyahu. And it seems that behind the scenes and maybe even publicly, he's going to be working, uh, you know, once whatever whatever the political ramifications are, once, I guess, the fake unification government that Netanyahu has established that his opposition are refusing to take part in, Trump may be supporting his opposition. And it does seem that I think the polls are saying like 79% of Israelis at this point want Netanyahu out. So it seems that Trump, you know, the, the, the meteoric rise of Trump, things are, things are getting interesting. You know, he's going to be our second non-consecutive president, perhaps. And now he's turned on Netanyahu. I mean, sure, he still is proud of himself for making the vaccine. But it seems that some of the issues from term one are really, are really correcting themselves. And look, Conrad, if we can say anything about Donald J. Trump, it's that he's... He's a proud man of a big ego. So the fact that Netanyahu and the Israeli Jewish elites actually backstabbed him and his own son-in-law, Jared Kushner, wasn't really there to back him up, I think really has shaken his faith in that particular lobby and that particular influence group. And I think he knows deep inside, especially after maybe some interactions with Kanye West being exposed to figures such as Nicholas J. Fuentes and other people in the American establishment, that he actually understands, I mean, the American sort of oppositionary establishment. He actually knows that where the attitudes of people are turning and he perhaps he will be looking at, you know, maybe having a more America first type view outlook moving forward. And he won't be as dependent on that massive Israeli lobby, which is so influential. But of course, that's just us hoping for the best case scenario, frankly, out of Trump. But he look, he did, of course, recognize the Golan Heights behind Israel. He did move the embassy to Jerusalem. So we'll see if you'll want to kind of bounce any ideas off, off of that and possibly maybe cooperate with the next uh, Israeli government, whomever you know, comes to replace Netanyahu, who definitely probably won't be winning the next Israeli election unless, you know, as, we, as we'll mention later on, unless, uh, you know, Netanyahu is replaced by an even more radical government moving down after this conflict resolves. Yeah, I mean, the demographic situation indicates such things could be possible. But of course, this leads to the inevitable discussion, and we'll probably do an ether hour on this, so I don't want to get too deep into it, but that, look, you know, Trump has called himself the king of Israel. They named major areas of the Golan Heights after Trump. They printed Zion coins with Trump and King Cyrus's face, Cyrus the Great's face on it. And between this and a few other things, I mean, there is, you know, a mounting case, and, you know, Donnie Darkened on Twitter has been the champion of this, that, you know, Trump has some resemblance to something like the biblical Antichrist. And if Trump you know, emerges as this returning, conquering king. And then coincidentally with his rise to power in the U.S., he somehow brings about some insane peace deal in the Middle East. You know, we may have to start seriously considering that idea. And I'm not saying that because I don't like Trump. I love Trump. But I'm honest enough of a human being and honest enough of a Christian to admit that 
if the Antichrist wasn't tempting for me to follow, then it might not be a very good Antichrist, right? Because look, I'm a sinner, I'm no saint. So if it would be that easy, look, people are saying it's this Shlomo guy, this rabbi in Israel. Look, if it's that easy for me to not follow, I'm not following some guy with ringlets named Shlomo, okay? And I, I just have a strong feeling that it's just not going to be that easy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, funny you say that about Shlomo, because look, the Messiah is supposed to be, um, I mean, their Messiah, their Mashiach, the fake Messiah, Antichrist figure is supposed to be somewhat of an attractive attractive type personality, especially to us and to in the entire world who, you know, he's going to present science in a very pagan-like fashion, and they're going to follow him as this, I mean, he is their warrior, this uh, godlike demi demigod type figure who they're going to follow, who essentially Christ wasn't. Remember, Jesus Christ on earth, despite, you know, performing miracles for them, healing people, exercising demons, resurrecting people such as Lazarus, it's it wasn't enough. So Jesus Christ, and they, they need something a lot more a lot more powerful, maybe even a lot more outstanding, and you know, just the some sort of five foot six Jewish man named Shlomo probably won't cut it. I completely agree with you. Um, so it, it'll probably be some sort of Aryan-looking, you know, six foot two from the tribe of Dan, born of you know, born of a harlot. And I'm going by Saint John of Damascus here, so I think definitely, uh, it'll probably be a bit more of a something like out of the film omen and of course i'm just following on from orthodox christian tradition here which we could probably have an entire episode on the antichrist and exactly what the saints say and actually predict prophesize about that particular enemy of mankind yeah i mean he supposedly performed all these miracles and everything but of course i haven't really seen the evidence but you know regarding the whole israel thing it's all just getting very intense and that's such a big, important factor to the Erdogan question, because the Metropolitan Neofito says that it will be overnight, it'll be like that, that Erdogan will switch, not Erdogan, that Turkey will flip on Russia. And that's only going to happen after Erdogan passes, which makes so much sense. I think ultimately he's going to die, considering he won that election. So yeah, I he's think... ultimately going to you know move on, and there's going to be people that you know they replace him, and it's probably just going to be pro-Westerners like we've seen filling up the opposition that will eventually, and perhaps, you know, Turkey and Russia will get closer and closer in looking for a solution to this Israel-Palestine crisis. That's right. We have to keep in mind that if the prophecy states that Al-Aqsa Mosque will be destroyed by, by, by the Israelis, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is a good thing. It's merely that, you know, according to our sins, the God will permit this to occur, this particular calamity or this building up towards the third temple and the reign of the Antichrist. Doesn't mean that this that we have to work towards fulfilling that particular prophecy. No, the prophecy speaks of a world event in a more negative or neutral sense, right? So it doesn't mean that this particular event is a good thing. For example, if somebody, if a saint prophesies about a war or an event to come, it doesn't necessarily mean that that event is a good thing just because the Lord allowed it. Not not necessarily. So people don't shouldn't have this idea that well. Yeah, as you mentioned, the uh, evangelicals in the United States would, if they heard a prophecy of this sort, if they even gave any credence to it, they would say, well, that means we should probably stop the Persian nuclear program then. You know, this clearly speaks about it. So there we go. It, as it is written, as it is spoken, we'll strike against Iran, which again, the United States, like we, we saw senators and like members of Congress actually try and provoke a conflict with Iran, blaming Iran for funding Hamas. Iran is directly involved in this conflict for its support, obviously, for Hezbollah and for Assad, even though Assad, of course, uh, probably really doesn't want to get involved in this because Syria is really on a 
you know, it's really rebuilding itself after the massive earthquakes in the north of Syria, as well as the really prolonged, almost decade-long civil war which has been taking place. But nevertheless, it has to be involved because there's no real alternative here. But the Iranian support for Hamas and for whatever's happening in the Gaza Strip is very, yeah, it's very disconnected. So I would say be very careful listening to all this rhetoric that Iran is actually supporting Hamas. It's very, Hamas has different sponsors in the Muslim Brotherhood, and Iran very much is not part of that Muslim Brotherhood. It's completely different and it's, it's somewhat separate, even though they may be allies through, you know, maybe they're fighting for the same cause, for example, um, Palestinian representation and the dominance of uh, Islam over the Holy Land. But that, you know, they're, they're fighting for the same goal, but from two different, you can say, directions. So I think that's important. There's something well, we need think to think about it from that perspective. I mean, Erdogan, I mean, like Erdogan, you know, it makes sense that he would come and actually support Hamas even more than he would be willing to support like Hez even though Hezbollah, you know, they control themselves better. They conduct themselves like a military. They conduct themselves like a state. But look, Erdogan isn't Muslim Brotherhood, but is there any politician actually in power outside of Hamas that is as similar to the Muslim Brotherhood as Erdogan? I mean, he's a, you know, he's a clean cut, you know, real pol realist politician wears the suit and everything, but he is still an Islamist. You know, he's a conservative Islamist. And obviously he is not as extreme in his Islamism as the Muslim Brotherhood is. But it's just important to realize that, again, Hamas as the most seats in the Palestinian Authority legislature, you know, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was suppressed by Netanyahu in favor of Hamas, they are in the minority. And, you know, they, of course, waged war, you know, with Yasser Arafat and everybody against Israel as well. So it's not to say that it, Hamas, it, the Gaza and the West Bank are united in their desire to wage war against Israel. It's just how do they do that and under whose leadership? And, of course, as we see Hezbollah and Iran being supported, that's going to be, again, when they fully enter the battle, that's kind of going to be the catalyst for what gets these other parties involved. So I guess, you know, we're past an hour here, Dimitri, we got to get to, this may be considered the fun part of the podcast. Like what, 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 what could we see happen here? Like, let's say, you know, Iran gets involved. Like what does a Russian involvement in this look like if the U.S. gets involved? Like how could this manifest? Like what would the military and political technology, what would need to manifest? Because I mean, right now, the most recent statements, and this is all just coming in live, Hamas said, we appreciate the Russian president's position of rejecting the aggression and the Zionist siege of Gaza, and we welcome the Russian efforts aimed at stopping the Zionist aggression. So, you know, Russia, China, Iran, they're very much now are on the side of the Palestinians. It's starting to shape up very much like those world war sides we've talked about. What would that look like? Well, I think Russian Russian support for Azerbaijan has essentially stabilized that particular front. And Russian relations with Turkey, remember Putin meeting with Erdogan, that essentially does essentially open up a front for Russia to actually move its Black Sea fleet possibly into the Mediterranean, which would be which would be a, a very explicit act because the Russians did have a portion of its Black Sea fleet fleet actually in the Mediterranean during the Syrian civil war, and obviously shipping troops back and forth and, to, and technology and things like that as they were positioning themselves during the you know the, the defense of Assad's regime, which was essentially a, you could say a positive thing, and it benefited not just the Russians and Syrians but also Christians. Christianity in total preventing ISIS from essentially genociding and, and martyring uh, thousands of Christians in the Middle East. But, you know, Russia could use that pretext that, look, Assad's 
and, and there is still fighting going on in Syria, Russia could move its Black Sea fleet, which is not doing much at the moment uh, against Ukraine. You know, we were talking about that Odessa operation and how it was being prepared in Crimea. The Russians do have essentially a Black Sea fleet ready to go. They could move that fleet towards the Mediterranean and essentially station them right next to Cyprus somewhere, you know, uh, perhaps even close to the two aircraft carriers and, you know, position themselves and make a very open statement, you know, possibly just outside of Syria, make a statement to the Americans and the Isra- as well as the Israelis that there are lines which will not be crossed. And in fact, this could uh, bring a lot of, you know, obviously there'll be a lot of concerns over a massive war in the Middle East, because frankly, think about it this way, the the Egyptians are very pro-American. The Egyptians at the moment are are essentially the second, so if there's two children of the Americans in the Middle East, it's Israel is number one, the second one is Egypt, I guess it's the, the poorer, younger brother, but Israel, Egypt is still very much a pro-American country, and it's holding the Suez Canal, so as soon as the Suez Canal is placed under risk, and shipments around the world stop, it's one of the main arteries through which most of world shipments and trade actually go through that, through the Red Sea, and so into the Mediterranean, we do need to consider that this could have an immediate effect upon things such as, you know, the goods available at your local supermarkets to technology shipments, things of that nature, and especially oil prices could skyrocket. So as soon as you hear about, I would, I would just, if, if the only advice I'll give during this podcast, besides going to church and praying very hard, would be to fill up a full tank of petrol if you hear about anything in the Suez Canal occurring. And if Egypt gets involved in anything, for example. Um, but yes, the, the Russian Black Sea Fleet could move south, especially given that the Bosphorus would remain open as long as Putin and Erdogan find an understanding. And at this point, Conrad, you mentioned that Putin and Erdogan do have an understanding. This obviously is not an, is not the most eschatological prediction, but we should consider that. Look, the the conflict happening in the north. We do have that ancient prophecy about the battle in the, you know in the Megiddo Valley at Armageddon, and that you know that's essentially where Israel will be fighting Hezbollah if Hezbollah breaks through uh, Israeli defenses, and you know the battle will literally take place at Armageddon, and perhaps it'll be um, it'll be like a test run for the future battle at the end of the world at the end of times. In this particular, and if you visit the Valley of Megiddo, this is also the place. Of, I believe Mount Carmel actually overlooks Megiddo, where the Prophet Elijah defeated the defeated the priests of Baal and actually ended up, you know, executing them all. These are priests of Baal, if you recall that particular narrative from the Old Testament, very powerful. And Mount Carmel overlooks. Uh, Megiddo, and it's a very powerful place if you ever want to visit it in the north of Israel. Um, you know, a holy place as well because uh, our our holy saint prophet Elijah, and of course Elijah will return at the end of the world too. So this is all very powerful. Uh, Elijah not being not not having passed yet, he will come back to face the Antichrist and to fight him at the end of times, and also as a prophet to the apostate Israeli people, and not not just the Israelis, I mean Orthodox Jews in particular, and Enoch will return as well. So these, these are things which, it's very striking imagery and very striking stories which will all come to pass, but it seems that, you know, we are moving there slowly but surely, or in fact, we are playing test runs of that particular, those particular future events. It's, it's quite striking. Well, you talk about you know, people could bring ships to the eastern Mediterranean, you know, perhaps the Suez Canal could get blocked. Qatar has said that if the violence against the Gazan Palestinians doesn't stop immediately, they're just going to shut down global oil shipments in the Persian Gulf completely. And Qatar itself doesn't actually have the authority to completely do that. But if there's one thing Qatar and Iran agree on, it's the Israel-Palestine question and the three most relevant countries to controlling the passage of oil and shipments through the Persian Gulf are Iran, Qatar, and Oman. So, and Oman has almost no geopolitical clout whatsoever. So, I'm sure it would basically just follow its lead of their other, its era, its other Muslim, you know, state brothers. But if that really happens, I mean, that would be what could really escalate this. Like the U.S. may have no choice but to get involved 
I mean, in theory, their best call would be to just tell Israel to stop. But let's be real, does which tail wags the dog? Are we right? I think Israel really gives the orders. So I don't know if the U.S. actually has the authority to de-escalate from that perspective. You know, they can encourage it, and maybe they could hint that they wouldn't support an Israeli action. But at the end of the day, Israel could pull on the could pull the leash, and and the U.S. would would send in the dogs, right? So. That's, that's how we know these things go, unfortunately. From an America First perspective, that's our interest. Our interest is shaking off this Zionist, you know, this Zionist influence and in regaining our sovereignty. And that's true for a lot of countries, especially in the Five Eyes and Western Europe in general. I mean, you know, us in the Anglo Empire, we, you know, the Jews fought against us, overthrew us, you know, in that region in general, yet we still support them. So it's, uh, you know, it's very much a problem and it needs to... And again, I'm not a ideological Hamas or Palestine supporter, but in this instance, you know, the enemy of my enemy is well. I'll just say not my enemy. That's what I'll say. Maybe I, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to get banned. But the. Uh, but yet at the same time, you know what we see. You're right with the Eastern Mediterranean. We've heard about the prophecies involved the closing of the Bosphorus and Dardanelles. But if the Russians are moving their equipment to help to help the Palestinians then no way is Erdogan going to close the straits to them. They'll let them, you know, they'll let them through. And then, of course, you know, as that, like, that's what I was saying uh, off air, that if this, you know, of how this could eventually lead to that flip from Turkey and Russia going from friends to enemies, you know, Russia could be allowed passage closer to Turkey's shores for a time. And then when something flips, Russia will then have to immediately start firing on the Turkish coast. That's a big part of, part of the prophecies. But insofar as, Assad is tied down as well, obviously, if Russia is to move on the ground in any way, if this comes to an Iran, you know, a big confrontation between, you know, East and West, however you want to think about it, the Syrian Arab army would be mobilized as well. And unfortunately, you know, if the Syrian Arab army wasn't so distracted fighting against Turks and Turkish proxies and others up in the north of Syria, they might be able to, you know, send more of a message and use soft power and threaten the Israelis more and allow, you know, keep them in check a little bit more. But ironically, Erdogan isn't isn't helping the situation in that regard at all with his campaign up in Syria. So again, Erdogan, as usual, the slipperiest, you know, most confusing character really, you know, makes it hard to map, you know, clearly everybody's side when it comes to the Third World War. But he's doing a lot better than the, than the Emirates, who are cucking harder than basically any other Arab state, you know, even harder than Egypt, which is hard to, which is hard to realize, frankly. That's right. Yeah, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates have really given us, uh, you know, not as strong of a message as, say, Saudi Arabia, which has spoken up in, you know, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia and the future king after the passing of King Abdullah. Funny enough, King, the King of Jordan's name is Abdullah, and the King of Saudi Arabia is Abdullah as well. But essentially, Saudi Arabia has spoken up that look, they've broken any sort of agree, any sort of future agreements with Israel. Any any talks about mutual cooperation have been put on uh, on hold for a very lengthy time. So I think, so I think it's it's quite striking that there is this particular difference of opinion there in the Hejaz. And again, these these countries in the Hejaz and the Nej, they're very they're very strong in their in their sort of Islamic beliefs in comparison to maybe a place such as Syria, Egypt, Iraq. These countries would be considered secular, and I would say Israel is probably a secular country as well, Conrad. Given the fact that the Orthodox Jews are very triggered at the fact that well, Israel has more embraced, more, maybe even more more of the LGBT ideology and the ideology of say Western uh, Europeanism than it has, and, and liberalism than it has embraced Orthodox uh, Orthodox uh, Jewry and even Talmudic Judaism. I think that's probably, and that's maybe even what, I mean, conspiracy-wise, maybe that's what Netanyahu and the Israeli
Israeli elites are banking on the fact that, well, there's a lot of these, there's millions of Israelis who are essentially uh, semi-apostates. Like they're somewhat like agnostic, atheistic, and this is bring shames to the entire Israeli people. In fact, them attending all these various parades and them going to these like the dances. And I was mistaken in calling in the previous episode calling that particular festival a an LGBT festival. I was wrong. It was just a drug fueled, uh, a drug fueled rave. I was mistaken. It wasn't necessarily, even though it probably did have LGBT elements, it wasn't necessarily an LGBT rave in and of itself. So. I apologize. That was a mistake based on really early reports, mind you. But um, nevertheless, so that particular sacrifice did occur on the borders of Gaza. Uh, but I, I do think there is this, we're seeing this fall of secular states to powerful religious ones. And maybe what emerges out of this fall of, you know, if Israel does fall or if Israel goes through this transformation order out of chaos process, Conrad, is a more orthodox Jewish Talmudic Israel, because maybe the fall of secular Israel is occurring before our very eyes, this project of, well, we'll just be nationalistic, we'll just be Israeli, but we'll be secular, and we won't give respect to these powerful rabbis in our community. I think maybe that particular that particular model of Israel, similar to how in Syria, Arab nationalism has failed in many ways. In many ways, it's failed in Iraq, which Iraq essentially, Saddam Hussein tried to keep it together for a while, but we saw how quickly disgusting and degenerate elements such as ISIS and very powerful Islamism rose there. And Egypt as well. Egypt is holding, literally holding on through American aid and the fact that they can, you know, they control the Suez Canal. Nobody really wants to mess around with Egypt. So nationalism and secularism is falling apart. And this is the main message, I think, in one of our previous episodes where we speak about civilizational conflict. Uh, the world is returning to a more traditional, traditionalist stance. Secular nationalist without regimes without any religious backing are falling to the to the sideline. This is a it's an element of the 20th century, which, you know, post-colonial, post-British imperial world, which they're falling away. And in fact, Israel may be undergoing that particular transformation too before our very eyes. We may see the Israeli army severely um, mauled and, you know, probably destroyed. And we'll see what happens at the end of this conflict, but Israel may also go through this uh, transformation. I think it's worth considering. But did you have any comments on, say, Qatar and some of these powerful Arabic states, Conrad? Well, the whole question at this point about you, you make a good point about the secular states and everything, and a lot of these leaders, even the more religious ones. Look, I'm not, I'm not necessarily come out and saying, look how strong these religious leaders are. You know, with the exception of basically Iran itself, every one of these countries are basically being held hostage by their large Muslim populations. That, especially in the case of the the kings of Saud and the leader of Egypt, if they, you know completely followed the American-Israel line on this, they would just get overthrown by their people in a popular revolution. Because this, I mean, look, Muslims don't like Israel. The, the Jews came in and kicked them all out, and they, they're, and they're running a degenerate state and occupying their, you know, their sacred sites. You know, they don't like them. They and they are right there, and they have those strong opinions. Like right now, we're seeing in Jordan, like you know, the kings of Jordan, they they don't like Hamas. They don't even love the Palestinians very much. But there, we're seeing enormous protests in Amman. People are just marching to the border to just like some people are saying, "Yeah, I'm just going to go start fighting the Israeli border guards." Like this is the level of thing that's happened. Same things are happening in Egypt, obviously in Lebanon. It's a little bit different. The people are fleeing because Lebanon is just being bombed by Israel. So the people, the civilians, are just fleeing northwards because they have the memories fresh in their mind of the 2006 war, which Israel did ultimately lose. But it wasn't it wasn't pretty for the civilians involved. Of course, Israel never makes it pretty for the civilians involved. That's a big common trend. Compare that to Russia, who has really been treating Ukraine with the velvet glove compared to how Ukraine has treated the Donbass, and definitely compared to how Israel has treated any of its opponents ever. 
But when it comes to the Israel demographic situation, I mean, look, the Orthodox Jews, they don't want to serve, the actual Hasidim, they don't want to serve in the IDF. They don't like serving in the IDF. Yet all of them have five, six, seven kids a family, and the secular Jews' kids are all gay, or they had one kid or had two kids, and that's it. You know, these liberals in Haifa and Tel Aviv, especially, you know, even some of the Russian ones, like I doubt the Russian Jewish birth rate is higher than the actual Russian Christian birth rate in Russia. I think they're more of the, you know, these are the people that go from, they spend all their time in Cyprus, Istanbul, Moscow, and Haifa, you know, Moscow's only a quarter of where they spend their time, right? And the moment there's any word of war there, they're going to flee back to the ethnostate. But now that there's war in the ethnostate, oh, back to Russia. See how this all really ties in with the new heavenly Jerusalem. I think that's an interesting angle we haven't, that not enough people have brought up, frankly. Yeah, I think what's interesting you mentioned, you know, the heavenly Jerusalem project and just the fact that, you know, these Russian Israelis and all these various uh, residents of Israel and Netanyahu, who can speak fluent Russian, by the way, his Russian's better than his English, FYI. So these people are ready at a drop of the hat to flee potentially to a say, you know, Plan B type country, which you know they're the richest man in in Ukraine, mind you, uh, Kolomoisky himself, who's currently in prison. But nevertheless, his assets are well above any of his opponents. And there is, of course, one other you know one other particular oligarch, but we won't be mentioning him. But Kolomoisky is is probably considered like the biggest Israeli Ukrainian oligarch over there, and he is he is a dual citizen as well. So just to consider. So the Ukrainian oligarchs as well as Russian oligarchs are very much from the same, cut out from the same cloth. But we did see Chubais, funny enough, actually. Not 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 only did he leave Russia, and this is, of course, you, you'll ask who Chubais is. If you Google Anatoly Chubais, he was responsible for the, the Russian default of 1998, when essentially the Yeltsin economy crashed, and then it spiked up, which caused the insane growth during the Putin administration. And of course, Putin's management of the Russian economy was also quite, quite decent. The fact that he put capable people in various positions, managing you know corporations and state-owned companies in 1999, 2000, and onwards. So the Russian GDP growth went to like between six and eight percent every single year until the 2008, 2007 economic crisis. But nevertheless, Anatoly Chubais, who's responsible for so many Russian mistakes, he privatized the entire Soviet economy. But essentially, this guy's like the primary bad guy, and he, then he invented this. He invented the Sputnik vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> he killed Zirinovsky. <laughs> yes, Zirinovsky, whose father's, whose, who's, you know, father who we never met was allegedly Jewish, and he liked to speak about that. He's like, I never met my Jewish dad. <laughs> then you have Chubais, who invents the Sputnik vaccine. Uh, Zirinovsky takes a couple doses, dies. Unfortunately, and we, he's not here around to give us his opinion on this particular conflict. But Chubais, yeah, fled is the fled the Ben Gurion airport, and now he's in Dubai. <laughs> it's like, excuse me, Chubais, what are you doing? So he's completely abandoning his uh, his Israeli roots. And yeah, again, this this is like the- well, he had to leave Istanbul he, after Erdogan came out in favor of Palestine. He <laughs> yeah. had to leave Istanbul, and he saw that the Emirates cucked, so he had to go to the more philo-Semitic but rich country. You know, that's that's, that's, that's right. the key. He, you know, he's not gonna he's not gonna actually go anywhere where he can't stay in his you know in his luxury areas. I think you can say he's almost the personification of a spineless cowardice, which may be infusing a lot of these rich folks. You know, we saw it. Um, we, we saw it in Moscow when uh, when Wagner was moving towards Moscow. Literally, all the plane tickets were booked out, and all of the elites were actually flying out of Moscow to Petersburg, to Estonia, to Latvia, anywhere but Moscow. So we do have this elite element where the elites are actually afraid, not just in Russia and around the Kremlin and all these bizarre rich places, but but they're also in Israel itself. I doubt the elites would stay to watch the to watch the fireworks if Hezbollah, the Syrian army, Gaza, and maybe even uh, you know another country actually get involved. But 
Um, frankly, like just a bit off, off topic, but we were speaking about the British influence and there is this very, um, very malign and malevolent. Obviously, the British Empire was responsible for the creation of, you know, the Balfour Declaration and Zionism and the Rothschilds bankers are their home base is is not the United States. It is, in fact, Britain, Great Britain. So we do have to keep that in mind. And they're one of the most powerful families you know, running not just European politics, but also world finance for many, many decades. And, you know, not, not just decades, centuries at this point, for at least 300 years. So we have to keep in mind that, you know, there was that backing of the Israeli state early on, and also the neighbors of Israel, Jordan. So the king of Jordan and the Hashemite dynasty, which reigns in Jordan, were were essentially put into place and put into power. They were local uh, nobility, Arabic nobility, who were put into power and secured by the British Empire. And not saying they're all bad necessarily, but we do have to keep in mind the king of Jordan, Abdullah II, whether or not he will support Israel, oh no, sorry, whether or not he will support the Palestinian cause will greatly depend upon what his British masters allow him to do, because he is, I believe, a sergeant or a colonel in the British uh in the in the British military, so he is actually he was trained from a very young age. Participated in uh, he was actually um, so he received a proper British education. He's part of the British military system, the King of Jordan. So um, this you know, and he may even be a Freemason as well. We have to keep in mind the early Muslim Brotherhood. It's Scottish Freemasonry is very deeply involved in all of these connections, and we know Freemasonry in general. If it wasn't direct Zionism, the element in the Middle East, which actually forged some of these early countries, including even secular ones like, you know, Ataturk was a famous Freemason in Turkey. But Freemasonry really touched a lot of these places. And as we know, Freemasonry is very big in Great Britain at the moment. So the King of Jordan very well may be a Freemason. Whether or not that means anything, it just means that he could be still have connection, those sort of connections to the old British uh, shadowy elite, which, you know, goes, you know, go back to old Western European values and old these old ideas, which are even, you know, who knows what exactly the, the backdrop here is. But we do also remember me and Conrad spoke off air prior to the episode about, well, what are the, what are the, what's the potential of the King of Jordan supporting the Palestinians? Because Jordan is the closest country to this entire thing. It's literally adjacent to the West Bank. Well, the consideration is that the, the Black September event of the 1970s, which uh, had, unfortunately, the Palestinians, the Palestinians had a lot of refugees and essentially the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Army and the Palestinian organizations actually lived in Jordan. They had a, uh, there was a large Palestinian population in Jordan for a time and they revolted. They revolted against the, the king at the time, uh, King Abdullah's father and the Pal and the and it's called Black September because the Jordanian military literally Tiananmen squared, so to speak, these Palestinian Black Lives Matters protesters, technically speaking. So it was uh, thousands of people died, thousands, thousands of Palestinians. If you go to Gaza today and to the West Bank, and if you see any Palestinian over the age of 60, he may indeed have a Jordanian passport because a lot of these Palestinians are actually refugees, firstly from old Palestine, and then of course they went to Jordan, and then they went back to Palestine. So Jordanians may not necessarily like Palestinians because they have, especially old boomer Jordanians, may have those memories of what the Palestinians did in their land essentially caused the ruckus. And I'm not saying anyone's really at fault, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty here, but just to give you kind of an overlap and, you know, it's very interesting that particular conflict that occurred all those decades ago. And I, I think the Jordanians are very much uh, hesitant. And I think Le the Lebanese people as well, it's not that the Lebanese don't support the Palestinians, but I think they do feel like, well, they will be thrown into this conflict. So I think they're a bit hesitant, even though Hezbollah has openly, I think Hezbollah sees an opportunity, despite Hezbollah being, I believe, majority Sh Shiite 
and very different from Hamas. I think Hezbollah sees an opportunity to support the Palestinian people. And well, speaking of Hezbollah, this is breaking news. We're about to start having a wrap up here, give our final thoughts. But I've, this is, seems to be confirmed by somewhat reliable sources. This will, if this is confirmed or not, this will be kind of where we end on going into going into this week. But apparently, Hezbollah, we are ready to take action against Israel. All our units are res, are ready. Uh, Nasrallah says we have a plan to destroy Israel that has been ready for 20 years and we're looking to implement it soon. So if this is true, uh, World War III is about to begin. So uh, at least in a sense that everybody would be recognizing it as such, not just, you know, from our perspective. So uh, be sure to pray. Uh, say your evening prayers tonight. Make sure that you, you know, get things squared away with all your loved ones. I'm not trying to scare anybody. Don't be afraid, especially if you live in the West, but just... You know, just recognize that, you know, if there's one thing that you should get from these kinds of world events, it's that, you know, you should repent and you should get right with God and everything. So, again, it seems that Hezbollah, if they are really are willing, I don't, it, it's just one of those things where, like, this starts to just raise questions about what was the plan here. Like, was this from the, was this an Israeli opposition plot to allow Hamas to do this, to drive Netanyahu out, and they just misjudged Hamas, went for broke, and were able to then achieve their goal of drawing Hezbollah in, which will then, look, from Hamas's perspective, they need to go all in here because they're about to be genocided, and their best hope is Iran, Hezbollah, Turkey, whoever else can help them getting involved. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think Iran sees the opportunity, it sees the blood in the water, and it's going to strike. And I, if from an Iranian, Persian, and even a Lebanese Hezbollah perspective, I can't blame them. And I know this sounds apocalyptic and eschatological, but I don't think their main enemy is Israel. Iran's rhetoric against Israel has been so heavy for like 50 years, 60 years now, since the fall of the Shah. I don't think they're going to miss an opportunity to strike while Israel appears weak and it has lost over a thousand people. In fact, I think I'll just give quickly the statistics as of now, the 13th of October on you know the, the Friday night. So the Israel-Hamas war casualties at the moment on the 13th of October, as it stands, 1,300 killed Israelis. 3,400 injured. Gaza, so Palestinians, 1,900 killed, 7,700 injured, and they estimate 1,500 Hamas fighters have been killed. So you know, quite a bit of Hamas fighters actually killed in this conflict at the moment. And the West Bank, the casualties are looking at, we're looking at 49 people killed, 700 injured from various missile strikes, as well as just localized fighting. West Bank of the Jordan, a lot, a lot more passive at the moment, but things could really escalate at a drop of a hat. And in Lebanon at the moment, six people killed, confirmed. But again, as we're seeing more bombings, Israeli drones, Hezbollah drones, um, you know, long-range bombardment, these numbers uh, will, in fact, definitely escalate. So things are looking quite rough. Yeah, I mean, as a, I mean, again, you'll learn more about this throughout the week. Everybody will be have it. We'll keep you posted. Be sure to follow worldwarnow.substack.com, obviously, but follow worldwarnow underscore on Twitter and worldwarnowtelly on Telegram to keep up to date with all of this stuff. Because it's 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 going to be a doozy. If this is really happening, we're probably going to come at you with a midweek show, definitely some kind of live stream. So if, if, if that's really what's about to happen. I, I'm just seeing a tweet right now. It says, Patriarch John the Tenth in the past. I say enough oppression against the Palestinian people, enough scorn against all Arabs, I would say. Very true. And, you know, people remember the most outs... You know, if there is an Orthodox position on this, Archbishop Hannah of Sebastia, you know, Theodosius of Hannah... He has spoken out very explicitly in favor of the Palestinian cause. He participated in the ousting of the previous uh, patriarch of Jerusalem, Irenaeus, who sold land in the old city to Zionist, to Third Temple-esque, you know, institutions. And he was ousted for that betrayal of the Orthodox people there. And now Patriarch Theophilos III himself is a very strong supporter of 
Palestinians and of maintaining the Christian heritage against, you know, the Zionist entities attempt to drive the Armenians and the Greeks and everybody, all the Christians, out of Jerusalem entirely. And remember, I mean, on the whether it's the, you know, Rokor St. Elizabeth's, you know, on the Mount of Olives, you know, and some of these other churches, there's St. Saba's in the desert, some of the most beautiful churches and most important sites, of course, whether it's the Holy Sepulchre, the Mount of Olives, the Tomb of the Theotokos, you know, all these places, you know, Jacob's Well, you know, where St. Fotini and everything, where all of that happened. So, these are the places that we really seek to be protected in the midst of all of this. And so as far as my personal perspective, I hope whatever happens that Russia actually has people there on the ground and is protecting those places, because I can't think of any other power besides Assad himself. But if that's happening, it would be the Russians involved. Those are the people that I would trust in this situation to protect the Christian site. So Dmitry, let's let's hear your last words and then we'll wrap this up. Yeah, I think uh, Orthodox Christian interests in the Holy Land need to be def- protected at all costs. You know, Palestinian lives will be lost and most likely Israeli lives as well. So we're going to see a very bloody war break out very soon. And in fact, if Lebanon and Syria get involved as well, as well as Iran proxies and things of that nature, this may in fact turn out to be one of the most violent conflicts of the 21st century, at least at this point. And it may even rival in terms of time and scope and just the sort of uh, divide casualties by time it may even be worse than the Russian-Ukrainian conflict which is hard to imagine at this point. It may even be worse than the American invasion of Iraq, frankly. Uh, so we're, we're about to see something really tragic and disturbing occur. So definitely uh, pray pray for peace. But all the holy sites in the Holy Land, yeah, the tens of monasteries, tens of churches, uh, pray to the pray to many of the saints. Do, do you know, it's now, now's the time to read about the saints of the Holy Land and some of these places, St. Porphyrius of Gaza, St. Gerasimov of the Jordan. Pray to these particular holy people who whose relics lined that land and who, you know, who were there protecting it and who are there answering Palestinians, Orthodox, you know, Orthodox Israelis in the minority that they do exist, Orthodox Russians, Orthodox Greeks. And all these Christians, you know, so they could, you know, at least provide them some uh, some tranquility and peace in a time of literally being engulfed in complete flames and also the rhetoric and the destructive actions of the elites of Israel, pushing people to, to bloodlust. And yeah, just very, I think, generally very, very disappointed by the push of the Israelis, both in the media as well as the various uh, Jewish think, uh, I guess you can say, thought leaders online and those, you know, Shabbos Goy type characters online who are pushing this conflict to to an escalation we've not seen, we've not seen yet, at least not in our lifetimes. So I think it's quite quite a negative trend. Um, I don't have to name these people again. Everyone online pushing for Israel to attack Gaza en masse and clear it out, are really, they don't understand what, what is being, what is at stake here. And it's, it's more than just the the lives of you know Palestinians and Israelis. It's also just the the shape of the Middle East in and of itself. This peace that this relative peace that we've known for the last you can say ten years or so. You know, on and off of conflicts occurring and people being able to travel to the to Israel and to actually have pilgrimage in Palestine and Israeli holy sites. That's about to end really quickly if this escalates out of control. So very unfortunate that this chapter of our Christian history is being closed. In a way, this chapter of, well, we can just buy a ticket to Israel and visit, say, Bethany, where Christ resurrected Lazarus, or visit the monastery of St. Gerasimov of the Jordan in the West Bank. That's about to end really quite swiftly if this escalates. So we're entering into a new phase where pilgrimage will be difficult, where many lives will be lost, and where, um, again, uh, where your prayers will be most important. So I think that's probably where we should end. Yeah, I mean, his, the engine of history is restarting. So here we are at the beginning of it. Yeah, keep everything in your prayers. But... Yeah, of course, we've seen so many people dead, so many children on both on 
frankly, mostly the Palestinian side. And now we're seeing, you know, journalists have been killed and everything. So as, as more and more countries see their citizens, you know, killed, those are going to get involved. And then all these countries that have significant Muslim populations, we're seeing massive protests. So again, follow us, World War Now underscore on Twitter, World War Now Telly. We're going to be keeping you up to date on all of this on World War Three as it unfolds in real time. So... Yeah, with all of that, worldwarnow.substack.com. That's where you can find everything. Subscribe to us here on YouTube, World War Now. We're so close to 3,000. Get us there. Be sure to subscribe on worldwarnow.substack.com to Ether Hour to hear the full interview we did with Father John Whiteford recently. We talked about all sorts of things like what to do if the FBI comes to your parish. We talk about Moldovan agrarianism. Uh, we talk about Malankara, possible reunion with the Moscow Patriarchate. So it's a really great episode. And yeah, with all of that, follow us on Rumble World War Now. Leave a comment on Substack and on YouTube. Really helps us out. But with all of that, yeah, Dimitri, send us off. Yo, thank you guys for listening and thank you for your support. We've been getting a lot of feedback and a lot of very positive comments. So, you know, we always appreciate that. So keep it coming. Uh, stay critical. No sycophancy, no no bizarre serverless comments. You guys just, no brown nosing at all. Just be honest with us. Be it, Tell us what you want to hear about as well, any particular subjects which we can cover on A4L. And we always appreciate the support. Um, you know, monetary support could be provided through subscribing to the Substack. That's probably the best way at the moment. Um, we are quite limited and, we, you know, we aren't exactly censored yet officially. So let's pray that those avenues remain open for us. And absolutely. So if you subscribe to Substack, you'll receive not just, I think, you'll definitely receive your money's worth, not just $7 a month, but, you know, the amount of content available now, it's exponentially growing, I think, and it's quite unique. And me and Conrad are happy to provide that over the you know over the last year we've been happy to provide that and going forward i think there's a lot more that will be available there so definitely be on the lookout for more news you know follow us on twitter follow us on and telegram i want to emphasize telegram being the most important avenue because if, if you know if they start banning people over this conflict telegram will be that one place where me and conrad will never be banned on will always be available and we'll always be able to provide you news as well as inform you where our videos and audios will be available in the future because telegram is that sort of noah's ark okay if you want to you know reference the bible one more time where we could be safe at least from any sort of online persecution at this time so uh keep a lookout for that Thank you so much, everybody. And it is later than you think. You know, I've never been, you know, I've never been less happy to be vindicated, I guess. So God bless. <laughs>